As you can see in your bulletin, we're turning again this morning to John chapter 8. John chapter 8, I'm very thankful to be again in the gospel of John with you. We'll be reading verses 31 through 59. If, you're, if you would like to notice we're reading through the verses I'm going to focus on, it will be those first nine verses, verses 31 uh, through, 30, uh, through 38. Again, you're free to follow along in your Bibles or on the screen behind me. This is the Word of God. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. They answered him, we are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, when everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin, the slave does not remain in the house forever, the son remains forever. So if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. I know that you are offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. I speak of what I have seen with my father, and you do what you have heard from your father. They answered him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You are doing the works your father did. They said to him, we are not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me. For I came from God and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father, the devil, And your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he speaks, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I tell the truth, you do not believe me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is you are not of God. The Jews answered him, Are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my Father, and you dishonor me. Yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it, and he is the judge. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. The Jews said to him, now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died, as did the prophets. Yet you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham who died and the prophets who died? Who do you make yourself out to be? Jesus answered, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my father who glorifies me of whom you say he is our God. But you have not known him. I know him. If I were to say that I do not know him, I would be a liar like you, but I do know him and I keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, you are not yet 50 years old and have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. This is the word of God. 
A number of years ago, quite a number of years ago, I was sitting in a college class. It was a science class. It was earth science, as I recall. It was science for non-science majors. And so you can imagine the level of the science being taught there. And I remember going through the first test, and in the first portion of the class, the professor had talked about the planets. And then we were called, of course, to study so that we could give a good account of ourselves when we had this test. And I studied, and I studied, and I studied. I showed up at the test, and I remember him asking very specific questions about the planets, like how many miles in circumference is this planet, and what is the chemical composition of that planet, and all those sorts of things. And I thought to myself, I am woefully unprepared. (laughs) And what was very interesting was when I got my test back, my suspicion was confirmed, (laughs) I had been woefully underprepared. And I thought to myself, how is it possible that I was supposed to know all those very detailed facts when he hasn't told me that that is what he is looking for on the test? So when it came to the second test, I remember thinking to myself, how in the world am I going to prepare accurately when I don't know what he's going to ask me? Now, for many people who walk around in this world every day, maybe even some of us, that is a question on a grander scope. How do we know that we will answer rightly to the God who has made us? How do we know someday when we stand to give an account of ourselves before the God of the universe that we will have prepared accurately. There may be some who are listening this morning who think to themselves, well, I'm not really sure that day is ever going to come. I'm going to assume you believe that will happen. That someday, as the Bible says, every one of us will die and we are called to give an account of ourselves before the God of the universe, the God whose air we are breathing, who is causing our hearts to beat this morning. We will give an account And how will we know at that time that we have done what we should? How do we know? In large part, although that may not sound like the passage that I read for you this morning, it is the question that Jesus is addressing. In verses 31 through 38, he is talking about the difference between artificial or what I'm calling fake faith and genuine faith. And he gives us, in this interaction with these Jews the surefire way to see whether or not we are embracing genuine faith or a faith that appears fake and will be revealed as so in the end. And the way in which Jesus tells us about that this morning, John records for us, is very simple, just two thoughts for you this morning. The first is about the crowd, and the second more exhaustively, is about the challenge that Jesus lays before these Jews and us. But let me tell you about the crowd first. When this passage opens in verse 31, Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, and then the passage unfolds. If you've been following along in the Gospel of John, you will note that this passage or these verses, no, let me try again, this phrase could be understood in one of two ways. When it says they had believed, it could mean 
that they believed in the past and they continue to believe, or it could mean they believed in the past and they do no longer. To know which of the two it is, I want you to think for just a moment about what we know about these crowds, many of whom had been following Jesus for a while, the Jews who have observed him for a good uh, span of time. And just a couple of chapters earlier in chapter 6, verses 1 and 2, we read about a large, crowd, a large crowd who followed Jesus because they saw the signs that he did. And then we read about Jesus turning just a few loaves and fish into enough food to feed 5,000 people. And you can understand why people would follow Jesus. He does amazing things. Who can do things like that? If you saw someone who had that kind of power, you would want to follow him too. And then Jesus explains what it means to be his follower in that passage. In chapter 6, verse 57, it says, As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. Now, what Jesus is saying is that our connection with him has to be so close that we cannot live apart from him. He is the source of our life. In the same way, you could not live if you did not eat for a period of time. Eventually, you would wither away and die. Jesus is saying the same thing is true in our relationship with him. He must be the source of our life. Without him, we would wither up and die. When you read that in chapter 6, you might wonder to yourself, did the crowds understand what Jesus meant? And I think the answer is yes. Because in verse 50, uh, 66 it says, and for that reason many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. They understood what Jesus was saying. And they followed Jesus and they believed at a certain level but when they came to appreciate what Jesus was saying, they realized that he was challenging them to the core, and the crowds began to turn away. But very simply, I'm not suggesting they had faith and then lost it. I'm suggesting they never really had good faith, real faith at all. Now, I would just want to back up for just a moment, or at least rise above the passage. And think for a moment about what I'm proposing. I'm proposing that there's a difference between artificial and real faith. And I will also tell you this morning that's a difficult thing to discern. But my goal this morning in this sermon, because I believe it is the goal of this passage of Scripture, is to help you see the difference between the two. But I want to give you sort of this thing first that I do not intend to trouble those of you with a sensitive conscience. Some of us, and I can think of very specific people in my own experience, always wondered. There was tremendous doubt always in their mind of whether or not Jesus could actually love them. If you're one of those people with a sensitive conscience and you wonder that often, let me say to you this morning, Look to what Jesus did in the Gospels. He healed those who came to him over and over again. Those who were looking for hope and help, Jesus provided for them, comforted them, healed them, gave them eternal life. These were people who came with humility. They came seeking his help. 
You do not read in the Gospels Jesus speaking harshly to, uh, to those who came to him looking for help. No, Jesus' most direct, his most direct words and the words that we're reading about here in these verses are reserved not for those who came to Jesus looking for help. These are reserved for people who are not looking for help. They were looking to stand above Jesus and to tell Jesus why he must be wrong. And it is for those of us who may struggle with that reality, subjecting Jesus to our evaluation, that I'm speaking to you this morning. Again, if you're someone who struggles to believe that Jesus could actually love you and take you as, as his own, I want to remind you of a passage that I read just a couple of weeks ago in John 6, verse 36. Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. And all that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. Again, I say to you, if your disposition is to doubt Jesus' love for you, hear those words. Let me tell you that clearly, run to him in humility. He will take care of you. He will never leave you. But let me also say to those of us who struggle with our pride and would want to subject Jesus to our evaluation, this passage is directed to us. Or to be more specifically, it is directed to those of us who are convinced that we can be good Christian people and yet reject what Jesus says. It is to those of us who say we want to follow him, but we will not have hearts that will do what he says. That's the crowds. And perhaps even that's also your heart this morning. And to those of us who struggle with that kind of pride, who say we want to be followers but will not listen to Jesus and do his words, that we have the challenge that's found in verses 32 through 37. And at the heart of the challenge that Jesus issues to the crowds and to us this morning are these words. Jesus says, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. Listen to the challenge that Jesus issues in this passage. Jesus does so by pointing out a real and genuine problem in verse 32. He says, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Now the Jews respond immediately to Jesus that they don't need that freedom because they are Abraham's children and they have always been free. They have never been enslaved to anyone. Can you stop for a moment and smile with me about how untrue that was? <laughs> they had been enslaved over and over again. The Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Chaldeans, and now the Romans of all people. These Jews were not politically free. They were restricted. Even when they get to the end of Jesus' life and they want to take Jesus' life, where do they have to go to first? To Pilate. They were not genuinely free. And yet they claimed to be free because they were misunderstanding the freedom that Jesus was offering to them. Jesus was not talking about the freedom that we have in our country, thankfully, to live where we want, choose our job, decide what we want to read. 
No, Jesus is talking about a much deeper freedom. It is a true freedom that, first of all, is about a relationship with our Creator. And Jesus says, when we have peace with our Creator, then we have true freedom indeed. On the other hand, on the other side of the coin, when we persist in sin, then we tell ourselves we are truly free, but we are not. That's what Jesus is saying. We say to ourselves, look at how free I am. I can do whatever I want. I can lust freely. I can covet freely. I can cheat freely. I can be angry freely. I can say what I want freely. I can misuse others freely. Look at how free I am. I can do whatever I want. But Jesus says to these Jews and to us as well this morning that when we persist in our sin, when we practice sin, when it characterizes us, if it is our pattern of life to live at peace with our sin, we are fooling ourselves. And I say that as clearly as I can to you this morning. If you are practicing sin, persisting in sin, it is your pattern of life. You make peace with your sin. You are not controlling your sin. Your sin is controlling you. You are not free at all. You are enslaved. And or how much you say to yourself, I'm in control, I'm doing what I want. This is my life. I will do with it as I very well please. You are delusional. You are not free, you are a slave. Now let me explain to you why I'm saying this so directly. I believe Jesus was saying it with this force in this passage. It is my conviction as a pastor that my sermon ought to carry the same tone as the passage I am preaching. And Jesus is speaking passionately in this passage. If you think you are in control, when you are practicing sin, when it characterizes your life, you are not in control Your sin is controlling you. You are serving your sin, not the other way around. I've said that a couple of times now, so let me use a simple example. And I'll use myself (laughs) as someone who sometimes struggles to control what I say. Imagine, oh my word, my wife is not here this morning. She was not feeling well. She doesn't know I'm going to say this. It does not reflect negatively on her, but if she was here, she would laugh when I start saying this. Imagine you are in a conversation with your spouse or another close friend and you can tell what direction this conversation is going and you think to yourself, here is something I should most definitely not say. How many of you have thought about something like that in the moment? I can see where this is going. I know what I should not say. I'm not going to say it. And then less than 30 seconds later, guess what happens? It comes right out of your mouth. (laughs) The very thing you knew you shouldn't. Why does that happen? Why does that happen? It's because what I shouldn't say is not really, first of all, what comes out of my mouth. It's about my heart. And control over what I say has to start not with my mouth, but with my heart. My heart leads my desires to what actually comes out of my mouth. 
And it's a very simple example, but that is also true for all of sin. What we do, what we say, what we practice follows our hearts. And if our hearts are not under the lordship of Jesus Christ, as much as you can keep saying to yourself, I am in control and I'm doing what I want, it is not true. You are captured by your own rebellious heart. You need a heart change. It is not simply a matter of what you do. It's what moves you to what you are doing that is the problem. Now, the Jews in this passage understand very clearly what Jesus is saying. I think they understand. And so rather than debating whether or not he is right, they simply say to him, but we are Abraham's children. How can you accuse us of not being right with our Creator if we are Abraham's children? Look at verse 33. They answered him, we are the offspring of Abraham. So how is it that you say you will become free? That's ridiculous. It might sound strange to our ears at first that they would deflect in this way, but it's really not. In fact, I'm going to propose to you that their deflection is the most common deflection that we also use when it comes to what we do as it reveals our hearts. Their excuse is very simple. We have a connection to Abraham. Abram is our father. That means we must be okay. We are within a certain religious practice. There was a great logic to their claim. Jesus had told them in the Old Testament that he was setting them as a nation apart, that they were his chosen people, that he had a covenant relationship with them. But what they were missing in the reading of the Old Testament was the matter of their hearts. God was not saving a family from Abraham and from his line head for head. He was using a family line to bring a redeemer So when you read in the Old Testament over and over and over about God saying to his people, yes, I know that you're my people, you are my Israelites, you are the descendants of Abraham, you have circumcised bodies but not circumcised hearts. And that's a deep problem. You're missing the points. God through Jesus could not have only said that, could not have just said that to the Old Old Testament people He could have very well said that to these people in this chapter as well. So that when the Old Testament people rebelled against God, he would tell them, you have uncircumcised hearts. And Jesus is telling them the same thing in this passage. They are taking comfort in a religious connection that falls short of love for our God. They are hoping that their religious practice and custom and connection will satisfy, and I will tell you it never will. Let me give you another example, shall I? This is going to be very contemporary because it's what we're doing here this morning. I grew up in a family where I never asked on Sunday morning, what are we doing? We went to church. I don't think in my 18 plus years of living at home that I ever asked my parents, what are we going to do on Sunday morning? We went to church. We went to worship God. I'm very grateful for that. I'm not criticizing that all. I am deeply thankful that is true. But at some point in my life, going to worship had to go beyond 
simply showing up and going through the motions. I can't tell you at what point that occurred, but at some point it did. And my confidence that I am okay with my God is not because the sermon that I'm preaching to you this morning is perfect. It is not that the worship that we're offering to to our God is perfect. Our worship that we're offering to our God this morning begins with our loving, our heart-intended obedience to our God. It is the reason that God could say to the Israelites in the Old Testament, you come to worship and you go through the motions of worship, but you're saying in your heart, when can this finally be over so we can get on with life? If you want to run a little test case on your own heart this morning, when you came here to worship and now you're listening to this sermon, are you thinking in your mind, when can this finally be over so I can go on to do what I want? I'm not suggesting that sometimes you don't have to drag yourself here. Sometimes I do. (laughs) Perhaps you're weighed down by your week or you're simply tired or you've been struggling with a sin and to come into worship seems like one of the most difficult things you might do in that moment. But if what matters most to you is simply your sense of obligation, your bare duty to be here, there is no love in your worship. There is no sense of wanting to offer to God the very heart of who you are. I can predict with certainty eventually you will begrudge what is happening here. You will not come with joy and gladness. You'll come with a sense in your own heart that God had finally be happy, he should finally be happy with the fact that you gave him a slice of your time. And then to go a little bit further in verse 37, not only will you begrudge worship, eventually you'll come to despise the God who calls you here. To put it most forcefully as Jesus does, you'll begin to hate the Jesus that is worshiped here because he is longing for your heart and you will not give it to him. At a most basic level, he will be a nuisance to you. At a deeper level, he will become a burden to you, and you will despise him, and you will wish that he would simply go away. Perhaps when you read verse 37, and Jesus says, I know that you want to kill me, because he knew what was in the heart of these people, that might surprise you. They've been debating sort of theological questions. But when it comes to our hearts, this is never mere theology. It's not an impartial discussion. This is about the very heart of who we are. And either we will love our Savior Jesus or we will want nothing to do with him. And it will be as true for us as it was for these Israelites. We will want to kill him. So don't fool yourself. In your bondage to sin, you will turn more and more away to Jesus instead of toward him. Which leads me to the very heart of the challenge that is laid before you this morning. In verse 31, Jesus said to those who had believed in him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. In verse 37, again, Jesus says, I know that you are offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. At the beginning of the sermon, I said, I'm going to tell you how to evaluate the difference between genuine and artificial faith. Here's what Jesus says about that question. 
Having worked through this whole debate with the Israelites, Jesus twice says to the Israelites, here is how you can know. You can know if you love me if you are willing to do what I say. Now listen to that carefully. I said it carefully. I want you to hear it that way. What I am not saying is that you are a perfect person. Jesus distinguishes between no sin and the practice of sin in this passage. He says if you persist in sin, if you practice sin, if it is a pattern of your life, where does that pattern come from? I've argued it comes from your heart. What is wrong with your hearts? Your heart will not submit to Jesus. Instead, you persist in wanting your own way, and that will come out first in a sense of irritation with Jesus and then eventually an outright rejection of him. When you look at your life, it is as Jesus says in another place in John, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And my commandments are not burdensome. They're not designed to force your life into a place that is harmful and hurtful to you as a people of God. No, the commandments of God are good and true and beautiful and helpful and guide us into a place in which we're walking in harmony with our Creator. They're good. But the question for us this morning is very simple. Will we love Jesus to the point at which our lives reflect that? and our willingness to obey him. I do not know how that strikes you this morning. There may be one very clear place in your life where you say, I know this is a place that I've not given to Jesus Christ. Could be your mouth and what it reflects about your right to tell people what you really think. It could be a place of lust and your desire to control others to get what you want. It could be a stubbornness. You know what is right, but you refuse to do it. Again, I'm not speaking to those of us with a sensitive conscience who have run to Jesus in humility. I'm addressing those of us whose hearts are hard in some place. Jesus says, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. And yet you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. There's an old Puritan prayer that says it very simply, as well as I could put it here this morning. What Jesus is asking us is simply to rest and rely on him. To know our unworthiness and to know that he is everything that he can give us. If you have come here this morning longing for that freedom, Jesus is offering it to you. He is offering a freedom that perhaps you've never known. You've longed for it, you've looked for it, and you've never found it. And Jesus says, here it is. Come to me, and I will give it. I hope you hear that as good news this morning. When I said in that science class many years ago what I came to discover before the second test 
Is that the reason that many of my classmates did very well and I did not in the first test was that the professor used the same exams every year? So the key to getting a great, good grade in his class was simply to find someone who had last year's test, studied that test, and I would do well. I'm not going to tell you what I took as a strategy after that. <laughs> no, I end this sermon telling you that little antidote because our God is not that way. It's not going to come to the end of time, and the question about true and genuine faith is going to be unknown to you. You thought it was one thing, and instead it's totally different. You just needed the cheat guide the whole time. No, it simply comes down to this, and it is so clear. Jesus calls you in humility to come to Him, to love Him, that your heart would be His, and that will be reflected in your willingness to follow Him. May that be true for me this morning, and each one of us as well. Let's pray. Our Father, these are powerful words that Jesus spoke, and I know that your Spirit knew that we would also listen to them this morning. And I do ask, Lord, that whatever your Spirit does in my heart and the hearts of each one of those who, is, who are here and those who are listening this morning, he would do a great and powerful work. Lord, we need to know the freedom that comes in Christ. We thank you, Lord, for what we have tasted and what we have already known I thank you, Lord, for the freedom that many of us know, for the faith that is so evident, the willingness to follow Jesus. I pray, Lord, that it would be true for all of us, that we would come to worship not with a sense of dread and not with a sense of obligation only, but we would come joyfully, coming to serve the King, our Savior Jesus, who has given us that freedom, who has caused the ringing call of that freedom to be heard widely. We pray in Jesus' precious name, amen.